Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, brought to you by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. This week, our guest is Stephen Bloom, a professor at SJMC. Uh, I'm Stephen Bloom. I'm a professor of journalism at the University of Iowa School of Journalism. I've been teaching journalism at the university for 27 years. So you're obviously really incredibly passionate about journalism. Where do you think that passion stems from? So a couple of things I've, I've figured out about myself over the years is I'm very curious. I'm always the dude in the back of the car who says, let's stop when there's a, you know, a, a historic marker. Um, I'm at the same time, I'm sort of shy, although this is difficult for people to understand, you know, who see me in class. So I got these two characteristics. I'm really curious and I'm shy. So journalism works out nicely because I can ask the kinds of questions that I want answered under the artifice of being a journalist. Um, It's also a ticket to see the world. I've always used journalism as a way to travel on someone else's dime. Um, That sort of fits in well with the whole curiosity thing about me. A couple of other things about this passion I've got for journalism is um, I've always been a real reader Um, and I I really lose myself in books. Because I lose myself in books, I oftentimes think, why can't I write some of those books? I can tell a story and there are a lot of stories to tell. A couple of other issues. One is uh, a very practical one. I didn't want to go into my father's business. Not many people know about this, but my father owned a a small community shoe store in northern New Jersey. And every summer I'd work out there and I really did not see myself as working in a shoe store for the next 40 years. But while I was... uh, doing stock work and occasionally waiting on, on customers in the shoe store. Um, in the meantime, in the off time, um, my father hired a couple of men who in the parlance of the shoe business were called shoe dogs. And they were great salesmen and I loved to listen to them. They told great stories. And I decided I wanted to tell those kinds of stories, um, just funny uh, stories that were illuminating. And we can get into this later, sort of bottom-up history stories about ordinary, regular, everyday people, not the bankers, the mayors, the publishers, um, but just ordinary people, gardeners, waiters, um, barbers, bartenders. Um, so that sort of begins to explain a little bit of my passion for journalism. Um, I also must tell you that I'm Jewish, as you may know, and there's a something in, in Jewish tradition called tikkun olam, um, and those are Hebrew words for fixing the world. And I believe that a journalist who 
does their job needs to try to fix the world and the world's a complicated place and today it's broken and journalists if they're passionate seek in their work to fix the world to change the world to make it a better place so with all of that like did you go into college intending to graduate with a journalism degree like when you entered school was that did you enter just knowing that you wanted to do journalism so my, my story in college is that for the first two years, I went to a private college in St. Louis called Washington University. Okay, yeah. um, sort of a mid-sized place, and they didn't have a journalism major at all there. And I worked at the college newspaper, but it came out twice a week, and it wasn't as good as I thought it could have been. So I transferred to University of California at Berkeley, a state institution in a sense, very much like the University of Iowa. Um, and I worked for the Daily Californian, sort of like the Daily Iowan. And in fact, I was the political editor of that paper. But I didn't get a degree in journalism. I just took a couple of classes in journalism. So here I am, a professor for 27, 28 years in journalism. And I, number one, just have one degree. It's an undergraduate degree. I don't have any graduate work ever under my belt. And my degree is not in journalism, it's in English. So I, in answer to your question, I didn't intend to graduate with a journalism degree. I always was um, much more interested in um, reading and, and writing books, really. And that's what I wanted to set out to do. How did I get into journalism? Again, it was a ticket to see the world. It was sort of a precursor to writing books. It was exciting and stimulating, but I, the, the end game for me was never to stay into journalism, it was to write books. Okay, so what was your first job in journalism? Like, was when you graduated, did you immediately go to enter and try to find a job in journalism? So, uh, journalism is an interesting career for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is the architecture is how I put it, the architecture of how people get into it. You know, if you are a, an attorney, there's a pretty fixed architecture. You got to go to law school. If you're a doctor, you got to go to medical school. In journalism, I'm a good example. You don't have to go to journalism school. You know, so my, my first job, my first, I did a lot of freelancing after I graduated from Berkeley. Um, and I did a lot of menial jobs um, while I did my freelancing. Uh, but my first official full-time paid job at journalism was working as a reporter and an editor in Brazil, in South America. Um, and your questions uh, indicate that you know something about this. So I, I took a flyer and I decided I didn't want to cover sewer board bond meetings in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. working for a small newspaper. And I decided to be, um, to take a chance, take a risk. And I moved myself to Brazil and I got a job working for a newspaper called the Latin America Daily Post. Um, and it was based in, in Rio de Janeiro. Who wouldn't want to go to Rio de Janeiro? and work for an English language daily newspaper. 
that was my first job in journalism. What was that like? Like, what, what was that experience? How did it help shape you as a writer and a journalist? Um, to use the parlance of today, it was awesome. It was great <laughs> to work for a, an English language paper in a foreign country to make a little bit of money, to have an apartment, um, to learn a foreign language. I, I spoke Spanish because I was an exchange student in high school and I took a lot of Spanish in high school and college. But before I left to go to Brazil, I took an intense language crash course in Portuguese. It was five days a week, five hours a day for 10 straight weeks. Um, so I was able to hit the ground running when I arrived in Brazil. And um, man, you understand America a lot better when you live outside the United States and look at it as, a, as an outsider. Um, so it was just great. In fact, I'm writing a book right now called The Brazil Herald, a book about my days uh, in Brazil and what it was like to, to work with a, a, a group of really merry pranksters, just sort of a, a group of people who were sort of like me, who were willing and able to take risks and do something pretty, um, pretty strange and pretty different. Uh, and to start my first job working for an English language newspaper, not in America, but abroad. How long were you there? I was there for two years. And that's what this new book is about, uh, those two years in Brazil. Um, and just what it was like to be with a bunch of very skilled, hungry, ambitious, um, competitive journalists who all were using this job either as a, as a way to stay in Brazil and to live la vida loca or to assemble a bunch of clips to, to make a reveal and to make an appearance back in the United States. So, I mean, the job market here obviously isn't great in this country right now. Would you recommend taking those flyers and trying to experience journalism internationally for students who are graduating or looking for jobs? Yeah, I would. Um, you know, if someone were to ask me what advice do I have for journalism students, one is learn a foreign language. You know, a lot of people who maybe listen to this will say, I can't do a foreign language, but you can. Spanish is a relatively easy language to learn. If you set your mind to it, I mean, you know, the way I learned Portuguese was by listening to, to Brazilian music. Um, you know, it's anyway, so I, I would recommend learning a foreign language. If you're really ambitious, don't learn Spanish, learn a language like, like Mandarin. Um, you know, so learning a foreign language is important. Um, and I would also suggest, uh, learning web design. Uh, I'd also suggest on a broader basis, taking risks and chances. Um, that's, what's really important in terms of this architecture. You make your own architecture for your own career. 
And, you know, sometimes it's going to involve um, busing tables. It's going to involve um, menial work that you don't want to do for the rest of your life. But if you believe in your dream enough and work at it, you'll get out of those menial jobs. You'll be better for it. You'll be better journalist for it. You might be able to ascribe to what I call tikkun alam, which is fixing the world, being making the world a better place because you've been a part of, of the underbelly of that world through these kinds of jobs that you've held. Yeah, that's really good advice. So like when you wrapped up those two years in Brazil and came back to the States, did you have a plan? Did you, were you like looking for other jobs in Brazil before you came over? Did you return home and start looking? Okay. So, so I decided after two years, do I want to live in Brazil for the rest of my life? I had a lot of friends who were married to Brazilians. A lot of Americans were married to Brazilians and they had Brazilian spouses, Brazilian children, Brazilian mortgages, Brazilian, you know, leases. They were there. They were there for good. And they're mm -hmm. still there. I, I really wanted to make my mark in American journalism. And I didn't want to work for the wire services, by the way. There are jobs in Brazil, as there are in foreign countries working for the Associated Press, or at that point, UPI, United Press International. I didn't want to do that. And so um, one of the, the, the benefits of being in Brazil was that, you know, I worked for this small English language daily and whenever there was someone who came to town, an important person who came to town, I could interview that person. So I had a pretty good impressive portfolio of stuff, of profiles and just of stories. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Inflation was over a thousand percent. It was impossible wow. to live there. A lot of economic stories I wrote. Anyway, I came back to the United States without a job. And at that point, I was uh, just a few months shy of my 30th birthday. And I, um, again, didn't want to cover sewage bond issues in a small market for a newspaper. Uh, I wanted to work for a metropolitan newspaper. And I defined that as a paper with a circulation of over 250,000. So I um, had no money. I crashed at my sister's house. I stayed on her living room couch in Brooklyn, New York. Um, that was not fun. Um, but it really pushed me into being aggressive and ambitious. And I developed a list of, of about 100 story ideas. Uh, and I started sending them around to people to managing editors at Metropolitan Newspapers. And I was just shy of my 30th birthday. And mostly I got no responses, but one day my sister woke me up at about like seven in the morning and said, you got a phone call. And uh, it, it's the Dallas Morning News. I'm not quite sure why they were working at seven in the morning, but that's when I got the call. And it was an editor from the Dallas Morning News saying, um, hey, I got your list, Stephen, of story ideas. Where did you get these from? And I was immediately insulted. And I said, I made them up. These are my own story ideas. I worked on them. He said, well, these are really good. Uh, we don't have a job now. But uh, if you're ever in Dallas, 
Uh, give me a call and I'll take you out to lunch. I'd like to meet you. These are great story ideas. And I said, okay. Conversation took no more than 10 minutes. Went to the bathroom, started brushing my teeth. And then like the light bulb like went off in my head. And I said, dude, this guy was saying, get to Dallas. He wasn't going to fly me to Dallas. He said, and I repeated to myself, if you're ever in Dallas, call me up and I'll buy you lunch. And I thought, let me get myself to Dallas. So I called back that guy, that editor, his name is Buster Haas. And I said, you know, Buster, I am going to be in Dallas next week. Uh, I just happened to be passing through Dallas and I'd like to take you up on your offer. And um, he said, great. See you next week. So scrounged around my suitcase for a couple of bucks and borrowed a couple of bucks from my sister and um, bought a plane ticket to Dallas. Um, stayed at a cheap hotel that night, the Holiday Inn. It was 39 bucks a night. And um, I got to meet the Dallas Morning News managing editor. And he bought me lunch. And after lunch, we talked about my ideas. He introduced me to some of the city editors. And um, before I flew home that day, I called Buster from the airport just about as I was to board the plane. And he said to me, you know, we don't do this too often, but we're going to make a job for you. We're going to give you a job offer. Um, and that's how I got my first job in America. Wow. How long were you there for? Uh, I was at the morning news for about four and a half years. It was a great newspaper. It was a great job. Uh, I started out as a city side reporter covering, covering just general assignment stuff. And after about five months became a feature writer. And this was, these were the days when newspapers, particularly in competitive markets like Dallas, were just going gangbusters. There was a Los Angeles Times-owned afternoon paper, and there was a real shootout in who would be, which paper would, would, would be around in the next 10 years. So there was, a, there was real competition. It's, it's one way to increase the quality of journalism. And so I was there for about four years and had a great time, did all the stories I ever wanted to do. Dallas Morning News sent me back to Brazil for four weeks to do a, a series of stories on, on, in, on inflation and the economy in Brazil. Traveled a lot, did just some great stuff. And um, at that point, I applied to be the bureau chief in the one-person bureau in Mexico City for the Dallas Morning News. Um, and I didn't get the job. And I was so pissed that I didn't get the job. Uh, they hired someone who was already in, Brazil, already in Mexico that I started looking for work and was able to get a job working for the Los Angeles Times, uh, which I did, covering the criminal court system. Um, again, this gets back to the issue of of, of um, architecture and journalism in your careers. You make your own architecture. No one could possibly put before me a template and say, okay, Steve, 
go to Brazil, come back, try to get a job in Dallas, and then try to get a job in, where are you going to go? In Los Angeles. Um, you sort of make your own trajectory, your own individual path, but it's all based on a passion and a desire to succeed and to be competitive and to be the best you possibly can be. Did you go from the LA Times to working for the San, or being, becoming the San Francisco press secretary? Uh, this, these are good questions. You've done your research. So I left the LA Times because ultimately I wanted to go back to Brazil and be the bureau chief in Rio de Janeiro for the LA Times. It was a big newspaper. There were a thousand editorial employees, but the queue to get to be a foreign correspondent was so long that I knew I'd never get to the front of that queue at the LA Times. So um, one day I got a phone call from the San Jose Mercury News, a smaller paper, but a paper in a very hot area, Silicon Valley, which is at the dawning stages of, of you know, the personal computer revolution. This is just when like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were creating a computer in their garage. And I got a phone call saying, would you like to come up for a job interview uh, to be a feature writer? We've read your stuff in the LA Times, we like it. Would you be interested in being a feature writer and being a national feature writer for us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I worked for the San Jose Mercury News, which was a hot paper. Um, it was, it had the largest classified section in the world at that time. And um, after being with the Mercury News for a while, I moved to be in the San Francisco Bureau of the Sacramento Bee. Um, you know, I always loved San Francisco having gone to school at Berkeley and to, you know, cover the three County Bay Area was a dream. Sacramento it was 90 miles away, is 90 miles away from San Francisco, but it's the capital city of California. And so I jumped at that opportunity. Again, there's no template, there's, you know, you're making your own architecture. Um, so I um, was in this terrific two person bureau of the Sacramento Bee newspaper. And one of the jobs, one of the stories I did while I was in the bureau was I covered politics and I covered the election of, of two candidates, two mayoral candidates. Um, and this was in 1992, long time ago. And uh, so I interviewed the incumbent, a guy, the mayor, his name was Art Agnos, and I also interviewed the guy who was the challenger a guy by the name of Frank Jordan, who's the former police chief. Anyway, did my story. Um, Jordan got elected and Jordan called me up and he said, you want to be my press secretary? Again, like I didn't make this up. I didn't, you know, I didn't create this template when I was 20 years old. You know, I'm peddling as fast as I can, thinking that if you're passionate about what you do, you get better at it. And as you get better at it, more people notice what you're doing. And so I accepted the job uh, as the press secretary of the mayor of San Francisco. Um, you asked what kind of experience was that? And in my mind, I have to tell you, it was hectic. It was backstabbing. 
It was uh, frustrating. It was very high stakes. Uh, it was truly the grown-up world. Sometimes journalism isn't quite the grown-up world, but this was. Um, I mean, the high stakes involved money, real estate, you know, the future direction of San Francisco. Um, so it was the only time in my journalism career in this trajectory that I had nothing to, to, to do to invent or create that I wasn't a journalist. I was using my journalistic skills to field questions from journalists and strategic communicator for a politician. Um, I really preferred being on the other side of the notebook. I preferred writing about politicians. I preferred making meaning of the world around me, not creating um, an agenda that a politician every day must follow. In many ways, I felt that I was picking up banana peels just before the mayor would inevitably step on those banana peels and slip. So that was my job. And I really quickly decided I wanted to get back into journalism. So that was 92. You started at the university in 93? Yeah. So what I did was after I left the mayor's office, I went back to Berkeley and I, I, I taught at a, um, a minority journalism boot camp one summer uh, for uh, people of color who wanted to be journalists. And uh, I liked that. I liked being in the classroom. Um, it was a way to convey some of my passion um, to people, at least in this program, had a story to tell, a real important story that had been neglected in journalism thus far. I also taught at, at a place called California State University at Hayward, which is in the Bay Area. It's now called Cal State East Bay, in the East Bay of, of the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and I liked it. I liked it a lot. I mean, I thought, gee, I mean, to come in and talk about my passion for journalism with people who are actually as passionate as I am, and as importantly, to, to write articles and books and magazine pieces, that was a great life. So I started applying for jobs. And um, that was in 93, and I applied for three jobs. One was at the University of Iowa. And um, one day, you know, again, one of these pro, uh, prophetic one-day stories, the director of the School of Journalism called me and asked me if I'd like to come out for a job interview, which I did and ultimately got the job. And so at that point, um, we had a son who was three years old and we put him in the back seat of our car and drove out to Iowa and started a new life. What was that transition like going from San Francisco and California weather to Iowa? So it was a double whammy because I had never held a permanent job in academia, teaching college. These are just part-time you know, instructor jobs that I had while I was working in journalism or shortly after I left the mayor's office. So that was one whammy. I didn't really know what it was like being around academics. Um, and the other part of that double whammy was um, that I had never been in Iowa before, you know, so it was, 
you know, I found Iowa in many ways a very different kind of place, of course, from San Francisco, where I had grown up in New Jersey. Um, and I'm not talking about the weather because I grew up with cold weather in northern New yeah. Jersey, too. It's a different kind of place. Um, and so I, I had to learn the culture of what it was like being with a lot of professors um, who were academically interested in journalism and wrote about journalism, but didn't write journalism, didn't actually um, create journalism. And interestingly, when I first started there, I heard a term that was used to describe me, that I was a practitioner. And I thought, what do you mean practitioner? You mean practice journalism? What does that mean? Whereas everyone else was, you know, a scholar in journalism. And, um, and I also heard that I'd be teaching skills classes. And I always thought that, you know, practitioner and skills classes put me at a, at a different level in a journalism school. And I always resisted that. I never thought that I was a practitioner, I was a professional. Um, and I also, I also thought that, man, I'm not teaching skills classes. These are important classes on how to tell a story. And, you know, um, you know there's a lifetime of, ex of experience that goes in how to tell an effective story with a beginning, middle, and an end. So um, anyway, that, that begins to describe the double whammy and, and sort of how I had to negotiate through that. So how, I mean, you've been at one school for this long. How has journalism education changed since you started? One word, visual. It's much more visual. Um, yeah. The storytelling is the same. I mean, you still got to, you still got to come up with an amazing idea. You've got to exploit the idea. You've got to create a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, you've got to develop skills as an interviewer. You've got to try to shut up and listen. Um, you've got to, I think, personally, with your journalism, try to heal the world. There's got to be an... Uh, an ultimate goal in your journalism. But the, the one aspect that has changed considerably is storytelling now is visual. Fewer and fewer people are reading books. Fewer and fewer people are, are using words as an end game to tell their story. Words, of course, are used to, to frame a larger story, but the medium now is, is visual. Do you think it's beneficial for the field? Um, well, you know, having been addicted to a whole bunch of great Netflix binge series, I just got through with a major commitment <laughs> during COVID, which was watching um, Money Heist. It's really, oh man, it is amazing. I must tell you that these tenants, these fundamentals of journalism haven't changed. You know, it's telling just a holy shit story. I just, mm -hmm. I love this story. And there's a really amazing beginning. 
the middle is is just making you lust for more and more and the ending just like makes you gasp that still is there but it has to be a component in in the dominant element which is visual yeah i mean i think that there's definitely a place for print and words but just i mean when i got interested in journalism everything it's so visual and it's really engaging a lot of the time and i think it does keep people in people might not be reading newspapers as much but some of those videos that like you'll see like short stories even on like facebook like they have millions and millions of views so i think that there's definitely ways to keep that hey what we're doing right now in podcasting yeah you know like people listen to podcasts you know when the world gets back in shape people will be driving to work and they'll be taking public transit and they'll be having um earbuds or earbuds and they'll be listening to maybe you and me jack i don't know but they'll be listening to stories and so stories stories are the currency you know and i oftentimes say to my students you need to have a a complete toolbox you can't have a toolbox with just a screwdriver or you know a hammer in it you've got to have a toolbox it's full of skills and visual skills the way the the ability to tell a, a visual story however you want to do it if you want to do it through um uh through a webcast that's fine if you want to be able to do it through you know a movie if you want to be able to do it through tv anyway but it's got to have a component of a screen because people expect that story to be based on a screen yeah. and by the way that screen might become you know part of like you know google glasses it might yeah. not be a screen the way we think of a screen it certainly is not going to be a screen in a movie theater because no one's going to go back to movies for a long time because of COVID. So it's gonna be a screen, you know, like a screen that we're both looking at, but it also might be a different kind of screen. It might be a virtual screen. That's true. I mean, VR, they keep pushing it, like it's on the rise. That'd be interesting if journalism and storytelling can get integrated and uh, you put on a VR headset like an Oculus Rift and you can experience a story. Oh, be... it, it, it's gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, we know that's going to happen. Look, I not so long career, um, you know, I, I've gone from the dominant medium, which is newspapers. I mean, cutting down trees, you know, putting ink on these, on these very, very expensive pages that come from a natural product, trees, and then having someone like drive around and like, you know, pitch the paper on your, on your front uh, stoop or step. I mean, that's antiquated. That's yesteryear. Um, And I think that, you know, even binge watching on Netflix is yesteryear. You know, I started looking at Netflix. I don't know if you're old enough for this. You are. You know, there were were DVDs. Yeah, I remember that. With with Netflix, you had a, like, you got an envelope, a a postage-paid envelope, and you you would indicate what movies you wanted, and they would send you a DVD. And then you'd send it back after you after you looked at it. This is like <laughs> it's sort I remember of funny. that. It's sort of cute and and sort of naive, you mm-hmm. know. But it's such a money waste if you can stream this stuff. And so you know, people who are listening to this will understand just within a relative short period of time, you know, how we went from putting a DVD that you could scratch 
that you could lose yeah. and putting it in the mailbox. I and mean, even a mailbox, snail mail is, is pretty antiquated to suddenly streaming. Wow. So if that happened, and that happened in the last 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. if that happened, can you imagine what's going to happen in the next 10 and 20 years? You know, That's true. You know you're going to put on glasses. Ultimately, you won't even need glasses. You know, you'll have some kind of implant. That's yeah, put a chip get, in your head. Yeah, that's going to be able to, you know, make you figure out, hmm, what do I want to do today? Do you want to make that recipe for, for, for fettuccine Alfredo? Let me get that. Or do maybe I want to see, like that old actor Brad Pitt, you know, and see what he's doing. So, you know, again, this has to do with this whole issue of architecture and trajectory. There ain't any. And I mean, so you got to learn storytelling. Absolutely. You got to learn what makes a good idea. Um, the, the added issue is the technical component and the visual component. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's exciting to think about what could happen, but it's also kind of terrifying at the same time just to see what kind of advancements these we yield and what where storytelling is gonna go i guess kind of going off that do you think that it's more difficult to break into the industry of journalism now than it was i guess when you started yeah i do i think you have to be smarter i think you have to be much more competitive it's always been a competitive position a competitive job but you got to be smart. You got to use your connections. Um, you have to be fierce. You have to be willing to take chances. Look, long time ago, I took a chance and I moved to Brazil. Uh, when I tell young people in journalism today about moving to Brazil, they sort of say, "What? You know, there's some young people who are afraid to move to Chicago from yeah. Iowa. Come on." So you got to take chances. You got to use all the connections you possibly can. Um, and you, you have to be able to rely on your ability to tell a story because storytelling isn't going to go away. How we tell a story is going away, but the storytelling aspect is the core of what we do as journalists. The other thing I need to say, and I said this in your class, is that um, you know the responsibility of a storyteller is to tell real stories that are that will chronicle what we're going through now for those who will pick up our stories in fifty, five hundred, a thousand years from now. I mean, we have great stories to tell about COVID. This is an historic moment. Um, so the stories have to be, have to resonate. They have to be real. And f- for my interest, they got to be about real people. Be about people who are um, the kinds of people I heard about in my father's shoe store that the other shoe salesmen, the shoe dogs, told me about. And they also can be laced with a little bit of humor and a little bit of profundity at the same time. So is it hard to get into journalism today? Absolutely. Is it a worthy profession? Now more than ever. 
Yeah, especially yeah, I get especially during these times. I mean, it's a crazy. I mean, it was crazy when the world was nuts when everything went online and our class went online and we all were put in the quarantine and those three four months since it's gotten even crazier and the stories that are coming out of it I think are going to really be probably insane for like my kids to look back on and read and like read the the time that we went through and I grew up in just this whole year in general like the stories that are going to come out of it the multimedia pieces the documentaries the podcasts it's going to be it's going to be crazy you know we've got a we've got a, conf- a an interesting issue here i mean an amazing it's an amazing time it's a singular time in history um we've got the george floyd stuff we've got we've got black lives matter a significant social and political event has taken place on top of that you have you know a, a pandemic um, and, and so these, the, the confluence of both of these things r- really has changed how we look at storytelling and who's doing the storytelling and, and what's the purpose of storytelling. Um, and that makes it an extraordinary time to be a journalist today. We also, I might say, adding to those two factors is we've got Donald Trump um, who doesn't seem to be acknowledging the severity of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got two conventions that are going to unfold uh, in the next month. So we're we're at this momentous time in American history, and journalists are the ones who are going to make sense of it. Even the how the rest of the year unfolds, it could get even it can get even crazier, and it's a hell of a job to try to make sense of all of this. Well, you know, that's what we've said, though, that like architects don't make sense of the world. They make buildings. You know, lawyers don't make sense of the world. They handle lawsuits. Doctors are the ones who are going to handle COVID patients. They're going to handle also when you break an arm. But it's only journalists who really attempt to make sense of what we're all going through as, as a collective mass of humanity. It's an important job and it's an uplifting job. And it's a job that, um, that allows us to forecast who we are as a people and who we wanna be as a people. It'll be interesting to see what, just kind of like how the stuff that we're learning now in our journalism educations and the advancements, like even by the time I graduate next spring, the way that stories are told could be different and the way people make sense of the world, depending on how the rest of this year unfolds and the permanent changes that come from it. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the new, I guess, generation of journalists starts to make sense of things and pretty excited for it. You know, we've talked about a bunch of things. We've talked about very basic stuff about you know when i worked in my father's shoe store the decision to buy my one-way plane ticket to 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 rio de janeiro we've talked about menial jobs that i've had but we've also talked about lofty large issues 
you know, making meaning of the world. If you want to get to making meaning of the world, the large, important, amorphous kind of, of issue with journalism, you really have to anchor yourself and ground yourself on how to get to that place. And getting to that place is where a lot of, a lot of young journalists need to, to focus their time. You know, it is difficult to get work, but if you, if you, and you know, there is no architecture, there is no template, but if you look at your job, whatever it is, if it's bussing tables, if it's being a telemarketer, if it's whatever it is, if it's bagging groceries at a grocery store that no one wants to go into these days, it's still, you got to start looking at yourself as a journalist, even though you're not doing journalism per se, and you're not yet telling stories that are going to change the world. So you got to have your, your, your dreams in check and you've got to work on how to turn them into a reality. It will happen if you're crazy enough to stay in this profession, but it, it takes a lot of time to do it and a lot of stubbornness and a lot of naysayers who are gonna say to you, why don't you sell securities? Why don't you sell life insurance? Why don't you do the safe thing? Um, and you've got to have the sustenance to say, no, this is what I want to do. I want to be on the forefront of telling those stories that ultimately will change the world. But it's a long process and it's a very frustrating process. And it is paved, to use a cliche, with potholes. It's really difficult to sidestep those potholes. But you have to be a little crazy in your intensity to, to stay in journalism. But if you can tell a story well and you equip yourself with visual skills, you can succeed and you can be in a position of telling those stories that in five, 50, 500 years, people will, will look at to get just a glimpse of what it was like to live during these difficult times today. Yeah. So I guess going off of that, do you have any final advice? I know you went into it a bit earlier, but do you have any final advice that you would give to any incoming or current journalism students? Yeah, I'll repeat it. It's learning a foreign language. It's learning visual skills. It's you know, doing something that most people don't do today, it's doing some discretionary reading. You know, I've had so many students who have surprised me by saying they've never read a book that they don't have to read. You know, just pick up a really good book. Um, you know, apart from the storytelling techniques you can pick up, it um, is relaxing. You know, it, it, allows you to go places in your mind. Um, one thing I want to add, recently on HBO, um, I watched a Philip Roth novel that has been turned into a miniseries called The Plot Against America. Uh, it's a five-part series. It's a great book, and it's an amazing um, HBO miniseries. 
but there's storytelling in that. So really just submerge yourself in, in storytelling. And let me add something um, in terms of advice. There are people who are wonderful storytellers, like the shoe dogs I worked with in my father's small shoe store, which now of course doesn't exist. And you know, these were, these were guys who could tell great stories. They were salesmen. So you don't have to just read a Philip Roth book or look at the plot against America or turn on money heist to see a well-executed story. Find storytellers, find people who have interesting, novel, gripping stories to tell and listen to their techniques, listen to how they do it. Um, but really, this is a business that belongs to people who are passionate, who can overcome issues like shyness. I said that earlier, you know, deep in my soul, I'm a very shy person. I still love to ask questions and journalism has been my ticket to do, to do that. So I would say if you are that kind of person who are, who, who's passionate, who's curious, who um, wants to see the world on someone else's dime, uh, who wants to make meaning of the world, and more than that, wants to make the world a better place, to heal and fix the world, then journalism is an amazing profession. Yeah, that's really good advice. So I There's think- There's your soundbite, dude. Yeah, that's, that's your soundbite. That, that's the money shot. Right there. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Stephen for coming on. If you want to find out more, you can find us at clas.uiowa.edu backslash sjmc backslash. And you can find more episodes on your favorite podcast streaming network. Thank you.